Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. Very warm welcome to you to the Parish of Calvary St. George's. St. George's Church. Um, Coincidentally, the lectionary uh, this year walks us through 1 Samuel, which is the inspiration for our Creative Arts Camp. And I want to encourage you in the next week, because uh, uh, Creative Arts Camp kicks off a week from Monday, but I want to encourage you to keep uh, the, the the team and your prayers and the children who will participate and, and uh, as we prepare to share the gospel uh, with the kids of the parish and those who will come from all over the city. We have over 120 kids registered and if you want to see what they've done um, I encourage you to pop over to Calvary Church and take a look in Anderson Hall. Uh, but two weeks ago, I mentioned, so we're doing a sermon series through First uh, Samuel, and uh, two weeks ago I mentioned that one of the defining characteristics of the book of First Samuel uh, is the shifts that take place through it. They function as like markers in the book, the shifts. And there's the first shift, which is from Eli to Samuel as prophet and judge over Israel. And if you remember last week, Ben, he preached on the shift, the leadership shift from Israel being run by judges, which were essentially tribal warlords that God would raise up for a specific moment to the monarchy. Um, uh, Israel wanted to be like the other nations. That was the problem, not a king itself, but to be like the other nations. And so there was the shift from being run by judges to a monarchy. And if you recall from our reading last week, we read about the first king who was anointed by Samuel. He is the people's choice, Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. However, in the Old Testament, just like on American Idol, the people's choice is not always the best one. And so is it. And so uh, Saul, he's a handsome man. He's a head taller than all the rest of the Israelites. And at first... Saul appears to be a capable leader. You know, he appears to be a capable leader. However, as you begin to read through the chapters of 1 Samuel, you begin to realize that Saul actually was stubborn. He was impatient. He could be deceptive, easily swayed, and most of all, disobedient to the Lord. Saul represents the people's choice as opposed to God's choice. And this disobedience culminates in chapter 15, which is where our reading kicks off. And our reading kicks off right after this major faux pas of Saul. Saul is told to go with the armies of Israel and be God's instrument of total annihilation and destruction to the Amalekites. God says go and kill everything. Men, women, children, their livestock. If you'd like to talk more in depth about why that, that happened, I'd be happy to fill you in later. But, but they're told to go and be God's instrument of judgment on the Amalekites. Now, who were the Amalekites? That's a good question. The Amalekites were descendants of Isaac's second son, Esau, or first son, Esau. 
And they, they were just nomads and they were savage people. And they attacked the Israelites actually when the Israelites were coming up out of Israel or out of Egypt and were sojourning in the wilderness for 40 years. And they attacked the Israelites and they almost wiped the Israelites off the face of the earth which would have wiped the plan of salvation off the face of the earth. And so they, and, and at that moment God is like, never forget this. And so, God sends and tells Saul and the armies of Israel, you're going to be an instrument of my judgment. Wipe everything off the face of the earth. And instead, Saul builds a monument to himself. Instead, he and his army save the best animals. And they spare the Amalekite king Agag. And Saul is sitting there, and Samuel comes and confronts him. And what does Saul do? Well, he first, kind of what we all do when we're confronted, he begins to kind of justify his disobedience. He says, we did all that the Lord commanded, and we saved these animals because we were going to do a sacrifice. And Samuel's like, yeah, right. And, uh, and he's like, well, actually, it was the Israelites who wanted to save these things. It wasn't me. He completely shifts it. And he blames the people. And Samuel, at this moment, declares to Saul, because you have rejected the Lord, the Lord has rejected you from being king. And then the next scene is something straight out of Game of Thrones. Uh, Samuel goes in, and there's King Agag, and King Agag goes, Hey, man, let's just let bygones be bygones. And Samuel takes a sword and just strikes him dead. Boom. So anyway, but uh, um, that's what happens. But this is my first point. And I think it's important to note. This isn't an eternal rejection of Saul. Saul was rejected by God as king. His vocation came to an end because of his disobedience in that vocation. However, that disobedience had major ramifications that rippled throughout time and history. It's interesting, when you read the first chapter of 2 Samuel, Saul is ultimately killed by an Amalekite. And in the book of Esther, which takes place 500 years later, Haman the villain, in the book, who tries to wipe the exiles off the earth, is a descendant of the Amalekites. Each of us have a vocation. Each of us have a calling to which God has called us to. Son, daughter, father, mother, wife, husband, employer, employee, in various and different ways. And these vocations are extremely important because in them we witness to Christ's love, we witness to Christ's mercy, we witness to Christ's forgiveness in the world. And our callings, or to use the Old Testament phrase, the things that we have been anointed to do, to love and serve the Lord in the face of our neighbors, when we step out of those vocations, when we allow stubbornness and impatience and deceit, all of the fruits of a disobedient heart to run the show of our lives, it does not mean an eternal rejection by God is coming. That's what it does not mean. But these fruits of disobedience can have ramifications that ripple throughout our lives 
and the lives of our neighbors for generations. And like Samuel grieving over Saul, we also can grieve over these things and situations that we've made a mess of or that we've experienced the effects of. But nonetheless, and never forget this, in the midst of the disasters and the tragedies of your life caused by you or experiencing the effects of, never forget this, that God is at work. Never forget that God has a choice. And as we read today, God has a choice, and he will select a king for Israel, a man after his own heart, or a better way to say it, a man of God's own choosing. Now, we come into our reading today, and it is a dangerous job. I mean, those of us who watch Game of Thrones, it is a dangerous thing to select a king while the current one is still alive and clutching to the throne. Nonetheless, Samuel goes down to Bethlehem, and we read what sounds to me almost like a beauty pageant begins to commence. You know, he shows up, and Jesse rolls out all of his sons, and we first have Eliab come by. And man, he's handsome. He looks good. Maybe this is the one, but he's passed over. And then you have Abinadab, and then Shammah. God passes over all of them. In fact, seven sons walk by Samuel, and the Lord turns them all down. And Samuel's confused by this. And he goes up to Jesse, and he's like, you've run out of sons, and we haven't crowned a winner. Are all your sons here? And Jesse says, well, you know, there's, there's one that remains. He's kind of the youngest. A lot of com- uh, commentaries say that this is because probably David was illegitimate. But he's the youngest, and he's out there keeping sheep. You see all of these motifs that are pointing us and thrusting us forward to another shepherd. And Samuel says to Jesse, send him and bring him, for we will not sit down, a.k.a. we're not going to eat, and we're not going to worship until he comes here. Now the whole town waits as they search for this boy, and finally in the same town square where Boaz proposed to Ruth, David's great-grandmother, you see this red meta-narrative tying the entire Old Testament together, thrusting you forward to the ultimate fulfillment of a promise? There appears in that town square a dirty, disheveled shepherd boy named David. His cheeks are flush from running in from the pasture. And you hear, in the midst of the tragedy of Saul, you hear God at work. There, in the midst of the tragedy of Saul, you see God's plan will not be thwarted by our disobedience. And all eyes are on David, and he is God's choice which tells us that God always chooses the little guy. As God told Samuel, For the Lord does not see as mortals see. The Lord looks not at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is my second point, though. What does this mean? Well, when we read through the rest of 1 Samuel, and you read through the rest of the Bible, what this is saying is... <clears throat> 
that God's choice is going to be in complete contrast to the way the world works. God's choice will often run contrary to what the world values. God's choice is going to run contrary to the people's choice. And God's choice, as we will read throughout the Old Testament and the rest of scriptures, is going to ripple out and bring about the redemption of the world. It will make all of the mistakes, all of the tragedies, and all of those things that have affected us, it will make them right. But it's going to run contrary to the values of this sinful world. We begin to see this right here. For that little disheveled shepherd boy, while he would become the greatest king in Israel's history, he, like Saul, would be disobedient. He, like Saul, would screw up royally, pun intended. Yet what made David great, what made David great is he knew he had a problem. This is the thing with Christians. It's not we're about good people getting better. We know we have a problem. And he writes about that problem beautifully in Psalm 51. He says that my sin and my transgressions are always before me, and against you only, O God, have I sinned. From my mother's womb I was conceived in iniquity. You see, what made David great was that he needed not just a little help from God, but like each and every one of us, create in me, O God, a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Therefore, he was not, nor could he be God's final choice either. Rather, his descendant, Jesus, great David's greater son, would be that choice, not only as the king of Israel, Hosanna, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, as they shouted on Palm Sunday, but Hosanna in the highest, the king of the world. And this greater son of David, Jesus, He knows the darkness that lurks within each of us. As he says in Mark chapter 7, there's no God-shaped hole in your heart. There's only cholesterol and sin. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. From within, out of human hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, And folly. All these evils come from inside and make a person unclean. Our hearts are not neutral. And what you and I need, what David recognized was, is that we don't just need a makeover, but what we need is a complete and total heart transplant. And this is what King Jesus has come to do to save us from the inside out. The real fight, the real fight in this country is not in the halls of Washington, but in the valley of the shadow of death inside each and every one of our souls. The enemy is not the people over there, but the sin 
in here. I love the old, old, the old AA saying. This morning I woke up. I saw the enemy. And I shaved him. That's what Jesus, that's what our king, the true king, God's choice has come to do. Save us. And indeed he has, is, and will. And he will purge and clean our hearts, not with life tips and improvement plans, but with the proclamation that your sins, though they be great, are forgiven. Full stop. And this is my third point. This is the gospel. This is what all of the Bible is pointing to. That in God's choice, King Jesus, God chooses you. For our King, in complete contrast to the way the world works, Look at yourself on the cross. Save yourself, the world shouted. Upon the cross, our king wouldn't get off. And he literally there in foolishness and weakness according to the world. Not the way the world judges. Not by the outside. St. Paul says we no longer regard people from that way. But literally there he waged war with sin, death, and the devil which lies at the core of every human heart. And by his resurrection proved that he has won. And it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done and the ramifications of it. Jesus has forgiven you. And Jesus has filled you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus has filled you and cleaned your heart with that love that will not let you go. And that which David could only hope for in Psalm 51, as he writes, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me, that I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. That which David could only hope for has now become your reality. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org slash giving. Thank you.